Okay, Hare Krishna. So, oh, um, yeah, you introduced the topic, right? Why we just why we only worship Krishna? Okay. Um, of course, the obvious response would be, "Why not?" But I mean, that that question arises, and it does arise itself says, I think, a lot about um, the current state of Hinduism. Go ahead. I think I will begin by giving you a brief, oops. If I break it, I have to pay for it, right? <laughs> I thought I would begin by giving you a brief history of the word Hindu. So we know what we're actually talking about. Um, the word Hindu, of course, is not a Sanskrit word. And so it's interesting to name a religion after a word that is um, not actually part of the sacred tradition of, of, of the religion. The Indian Supreme Court uh, years ago declared that uh, a legal definition of what it means to be Hindu, this was necessary because in India there were various legal technicalities regarding marriages or divorces, inheritance law, and so on and so forth, and therefore it became necessary to give a legal definition of who and what is a Hindu. And the Supreme Court did that. Uh, what I find interesting is that um, the very first qualification or characteristic of a Hindu is that one accepts the Vedic literature as sacred, to accept the Vedic Shastra, Vaidika Shastra in Sanskrit. So here we have an interesting you could say irony, that to be a Hindu, you have to accept Vedic Shastra, but the Vedic Shastra does not mention Hinduism. And so I'm going to explore this a bit. First of all, to understand the word Hindu, I, I have to tell you, I mean, you have to know something about the history of language, and I'll try to make this brief and painless. If it's too much, technical linguistics for you, then shout and we'll know you're in pain. <laughs> so, uh, if we study the history of languages, as we know that uh, Sanskrit is intimately connected with and perhaps the origin of virtually every European language, including East Europe, including Russian, Ukrainian, and so on, with the sole exception of Basque, you know, the Basque people up in northern Spain, and uh, Finnish, the language of, of Finland, and Hungarian. But besides that, all of the Slavic languages, such as Russian, Ukrainian, and all the, all those, you know, uh, Serbian, et cetera, Czech, and all those languages, all the Romance languages, which are Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, French, and of course, Romanian, and the Germanic languages like uh, German, Dutch, English, all the Scandinavian languages, except, I mean, Swedish, Danish, Norwegian. And also, we have to throw into this little 
part here, uh, Albanian, you'll be delighted to know. Albanian is also related to Sanskrit. And an ancient language called Hittite, which was a language spoken by the Hittite Empire, uh, which is basically what is now central Turkey. So this and other languages, Greek also, uh, Greek is also related to Sanskrit. So you have this Indo-European language family. And uh, as Sanskrit words spread around the world, people naturally pronounce them with an accent. Just like, for example, uh, if an American speaks Spanish, it comes out pretty, uh, usually pretty, in a pretty humorous way. Or when people, let's say, from Latin America speak English. So people speak foreign languages with accents, or they adopt the languages. So uh, when, if you look, if you, of course, you all know where India is in the world. So the immediate neighbor of India going to the West, of course, was the Persian Empire. And Persia's uh, ancient Persian is actually a, san a dialect of Sanskrit. And there's a whole history of how the first great Persian emperor, Cyrus the Great, who abolished slavery and declared freedom of religion, and who was considered a messiah in the Old Testament because he freed the Jews from Babylonian rule. This Cyrus the Great was actually a Vedic king who started the Persian Empire, ironically, because his name in his own language was actually pronounced Kurus. And Kuru, of course, is a very popular king's name in Vedic literature. It's found throughout Mahabharata. Uh, so anyway, without going into all that ancient history, uh, when Sanskrit was spoken by Persians, uh, they pronounced, just because that's the way they spoke, they pronounced a, an S at the beginning of the word as an H. So they, so there is a great river, which in it, which to some extent divided the two great civilizations, the Persian Empire and, and the Vedic Indian civilization. And that river is called the Sindhu River, the Sindh. And therefore, it was pronounced by the Persians as the Hindu River. And they called all the people on the other side of the river, the Hindus. And so the word Hindu began as a, uh, a name for people on the other side of a great river. Now, the next door neighbors of the Persians, they had many neighbors, but the ones that interest us here are the Greeks, the Greek empire, or the cultural empire. And so, do you need something? So the Greeks uh, did not pronounce an H at the beginning of a word. In fact, we still have words in English that still have that Greek way of talking. For example, the word honor, like on your honor. We don't say honor, or we don't say uh, how many hours does it take to get there? And I hope you don't say that. <laughs> so words like honor and hour, and other words uh, come from the ancient Greek. So if you take the word Sindhu and the Persians say Hindu, and then the Greeks say Hindu, and therefore you get India. <laughs> so moving right along here. Now, uh, something happened 
about to see how many years ago would it be? Let's say approximately, roughly about a thousand years ago. And that is India was invaded by uh, Central Asians who brought the Persian pronunciation with them. So when they invaded India, Muhammad of Ghazni and other uh, really admirable bar <laughs> barbarians, um, when, they, when they invaded India, they, once they installed themselves in India, they called all the Indians who worshipped, according to the Vedic method, they called them uh, Hindus. And even they even called Buddhists Hindus. In other words, everyone who wasn't a Muslim was a Hindu. And the word did not mean a particular religion. It simply meant everyone in India who's not Muslim. And so that's how the word was used. So let's speed up now about 500 years, let's say about 500 years ago. And uh, which we have extensive literature from about 500 years ago in India, in which we can study exactly how Muslims and people who followed Vedic Shastra, how they use the word Hindu. And perhaps the best text for this is the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Is there any water around here? My GBC zone for a glass of water. <coughs> My kingdom. Anyway, so. Um, so the Chaitanya Charitamrita is considered even by Western scholars as one of the best sources to see exactly how this word was used at the time, what was going on in India at the time. And we even can study how Lord Chaitanya used the word Hindu. How Lord Chaitanya used the word Hindu. Now, so here's the conclusion. Uh, the Muslims continued, Hare Krishna, and also a menu, please. <laughs> So, what we find is the Muslims continued. Well, okay, don't worry. I can just put it here. No, no, don't bother. I can. Uh, there we go. Dexterity is one of the symptoms of a bona fide guru. So, <laughs> by the word, by the way, the word dexterity comes from Sanskrit. Uh, from the Sanskrit word daksha, which means expert or daksha dexterity. That's okay. We're we're fine here. We're fine. No, no, no. I, I can do paper cups actually. I do that on purpose just to show that I'm very humble. So anyway, so what we find 500 years ago in India is that Muslims continue their interesting habit of calling all non-Muslims Hindus especially people that follow the Vedic literature. And the Vaishnavas and other groups within uh, what is now called Hinduism, they would use the word Hindu. They would call themselves Hindu only when they were speaking to Muslims. Because if you're talking to somebody and they say, what are you? I'm a Vaishnav. Okay, you're a Hindu. No, I'm a Vaishnav. Okay, so you're a Hindu. And especially if the people who keep insisting on this uh, are in charge of your country, 
and are violent and dangerous, then okay, I'm a Hindu, next. So what we find is in conversations between Muslims and Hindus, that what we now call Hindus, that, that Vaishnavas or other groups, they, they refer to themselves as Hindu, they refer to their religion as Hindu Dharma only, only when they're speaking to Muslims. And when they're speaking to themselves, they never use the word. When speaking to them, uh, among themselves, if, for example, if a Vaishnava is speaking to another Vaishnava, the Vaishnava is speaking to a Shakta or a Shaiva or, or, or something like that, they never use the word. They never use that word to describe what they're doing, only when they're speaking to Muslims. So now what changed? Uh, what changed is, okay, let, let, let's you know, jump ahead a few centuries. And we have another event, which is the British arrival in India. First, of course, as a purely commercial operation, the British East India Trading Company. Now, the British, uh, and we know the, uh, their checkered history in India, I'm not going to debate colonialism and, and all that stuff, but but suffice it to say, the British did bring something to India which was attractive to Indians, which the Muslims never brought. And that is they brought modernity, they brought technology, they brought great universities. So if you think about it, when the Muslims invaded India, basically all they had going for them from the Indian perspective was they tended to win battles. They, they were sort of savage and they tended to win battles. Other than that, if you look at the Muslim culture in terms of their technology, in terms of their intellectual prowess, in terms of their culture in general, Indians were simply, for the most part, not impressed. Because if you were in India and let's say you, you were a farmer, what were the Muslims bringing you that would significantly enhance your production as a farmer. If you were a Brahmin, if you were an intellectual, it was like, seriously? I mean, what are they bringing you that is intellectually impressive when you have in India one of the most sophisticated intellectual traditions in history? You have the Sanskrit language, it's not that Arabic was seductive for people that spoke Sanskrit. It's not that the Quran was going to uh, seduce people or attract people who knew the Vedic literature, who knew Bhagavad Gita or Srimad Bhagavatam. Hare Krishna, just Hare Krishna. Uh, we're, we're having a class now, so you can worship after. Thank you. So, um, so the Muslims, basically, they're, I mean, it's not, I mean, there were obviously some Muslims in India who were scholars, who were this or that, but basically uh, there was very little, almost nothing the Muslims brought that Indians would perceive as superior culture. They simply had military dominance. So after that, but when the British come, it's different because, of course, first you have the, the, the British East India Trading Company, 
it's just business. That's why, it, it, one interesting thing about Indian history, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Indians did not tend to build important cities along their coastline. Because in terms of trade, uh, the trade tended to be one way. I mean, for example, in the Roman Empire, they had a huge trade deficit with India because India had lots of things the Romans wanted and the Romans had almost nothing the Indians wanted because they already had everything, so they had to pay with gold. And so it was, it was, it was actually a big trade deficit with, uh, for the Romans. But in any case, India tended to be a self-contained country. It had the, still has, the uh, by far the greatest natural irrigation system on earth. If you look at just Google India rivers, and you will see it has the by far the greatest natural irrigation irrigation system in the world. India has virtually all climates. Uh, you know, if you go into the Himalayas, you can get Arctic temperatures. If you go to South India, you can get tropical, basically summer all year. And uh, you know, deserts and jungles and mountains and everything, and extraordinary natural wealth, including precious gems, uh, gold, everything. You name it and an advanced civilization. So um, the British came and at first it was just trade. In fact, for when the British actually conquered the Mughals, you had a period for, I mean, roughly you could say 100 years, 150 years, when India was governed by a for-profit corporation, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, and until the, the, the crown actually took over the government of India in, in the middle of the 1800s because the British East India Company was causing a big mess. But in any case, because the British East India Company was um, a company, they would not allow Christian preachers to come to India. If they caught a Christian preacher trying to sneak into India on one of their boats, they sent them back because it's bad business. I mean, for example, let's say someone owns a store. It could be a sporting goods store. It could be, you know, a supermarket. And if the store, if you walk into the supermarket or the sporting goods store and the clerks are coming up to you and trying to convert you, I mean, obviously people aren't gonna go to that store. It's extremely bad business. And so the British didn't allow Christian preachers to come to India, but something changed in England, in Britain. And that is, there was uh, people that come in late, Hare Krishna, uh, Hare, is it possible to explain? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, please, please just sit down in the back if you come in late. Thank you. So, um, So what happened in England, and also in America, by the way, around uh, 1800, is that there was this religious revival. There was sort of this fanatic religious revival of Christianity. And therefore, uh, in Britain, the people started electing more Christian members of parliament. The members of parliament who ultimately governed the East India Trading Company changed the laws and they started sending preachers to India, which was a mess. But anyway, but still, from the Indian point of view, although Indians in general didn't become Christians because it was kind of a, well, sort of a counterintuitive theology. I won't go into that. I mean, all the serious problems with that theology, but, but the British did bring, for example, railroads 
electricity. Uh, they built universities, or Indians could go to London and study. Technology, science, all these things. And even a, you could say, sophisticated, or if you want to say pseudo-sophisticated or sophisticated study of Vedic literature. The Muslims uh, did not, I mean, there were some Muslims who, who were interested in, in Vedic literature, Bhagavad Gita, but not in any serious systematic way. But the British were different. The British actually became some of the world's greatest Sanskrit scholars, along with Germans. Of course, many of the greatest Sanskrit scholars were Indians. But they, they, they endowed, there was a chair, there still is, a Sanskrit chair at Oxford and at Cambridge. The British produced a, what is still the most widely used Sanskrit English dictionary in the world. Uh, for example, the fact that Sanskrit is an Indo-European language, the fact that there's an intimate connection between ancient Indian civilization, between Sanskrit and Europe, that was discovered by Sir William Jones, who was the head of the Royal Asiatic Society in Calcutta. And he gave a famous speech in 1790. So the, so the British and the Europeans in general, not just the British, the Germans, the French, uh, and to less and the Dutch were very prominent in this also to lesser extent Italians or others and a few Americans like uh, anyway they brought this whole apparatus this very sophisticated apparatus of modern scholarship and they applied it to Vedic Shastras they translated the Vedas there were many many translations of the Gita they translated the Bhagavatam there was a French translation of the Bhagavatam uh, hundreds of years ago. And they read these things. And they entered into dialogue. For example, if you look at the 19th century in India, there was this very lively, fascinating dialogue going on between learned, learned Christian theologians and learned uh, Vaishnavas like Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Bhaktivinoda Thakur is very much part of that movement. And so, uh, in the face of technology, science, applied science, like railroads, construction techniques, military technology, you know, machine guns and, and uh, bombs and things. In the face of, in other words, in the face of the modern world, with the British, with the Muslim occupation of India, and eventually, of course, they became Indians, but they're still, it was a type of, uh, it was a type of oppressive rule of a minority government. Um, it was still not the modern world. In fact, there was something very unmodern about religious fanaticism. But with the British, with the British occupation of India, you have a competition not simply between a Middle Eastern religion that tends to be fanatical and a very sophisticated Vedic tradition, but you actually have a competition or a tension between the modern world and the pre-modern world. And the modern world looked very good to some very intelligent Indians because of the technology, the scholarly techniques, and the critical analysis of the Vedas and, and, the, and so on and so forth. So you get, for example, not simply saying as the Muslims might, 
that uh, the Hindus are simply believe, you know, they're believing in false gods, idol worship and stuff like that. And there were some fanatical Christians that said that. But with England, with, with the university system, you started to get more subtle criticisms. Like for example, this is symbolic or it's symptomatic of a certain stage of human intellectual development and so on. You start to get this academic approach and uh, what happens is a significant number of young, very bright Hindus, we can use that word here, uh, and I'll explain why they, they still, they start to become seduced by the modern world. It's not they became Christians, which was not so seductive, but they start to become seduced by the modern world and they start to look at their own civilization as old fashioned, mythological, and so on and so forth. Whereas a sort of very simple uh, monotheism of the West starts to look interesting. Now you have certain responses because in India, and, and eventually I'm going to get the response that created the use of the word Hindu as you now know it. But in India, it's not that everyone was being seduced by the modern world. And there were very intelligent Indians who wanted to fight back and defend their traditional culture. Although in the act of defending their traditional culture, they started to distort it and even pervert it. And I'll, I'll give one uh, very famous example. I think his name is Swami Dayananda. He started the Arya Samaj. And so because at the same time, all this is going on. Uh, hope you don't mind a little history here. But at the same time that all this is going on, there's something else going on. And that is some leading Western intellectuals, such as, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy at Walden Pond, Henry um, Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau, there, 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 there arises a group in America, which are called, in America, they're called the Boston Brahmins because there are people like Sir, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the greatest American poets, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden Pond. And they're saying, for example, Henry Thoreau, when I, when I was at Harvard, one year I lived a bit out in the country and um, I was walking distance to Walden Pond. I used to walk there. And so Henry David Thoreau wanted to make this experiment because he, he thought even then that mod, the modern world's becoming crazy. We're losing our values. So he wanted to go back into nature and try to find himself. And he said, I'm only going to take one, I'm going to take one book. And that's going to be the book that will guide me. And the book he chose was Bhagavad Gita. And he said, actually, there's a famous quote, which we use in the back of our Gita, that the modern world with all its literature seems puny and trivial compared to the Bhagavad Gita. And then you have Ralph Waldo Emerson, this very famous poet who also glorifies the Bhagavad Gita. You have European scholars who are attracted to, and philosophers like Schopenhauer and others who are attracted to the Upanishads. And they think that, they think actually in comparison to Christianity, it's almost like, it's almost like a mirror opposite of what's going on in India. Because in India, you have these young Indian intellectuals who are called, of course, Calcutta was the intellectual capital and general the capital. And so they were called the Bhadralok and which is just a translation of the English term good society, which means higher class people. And so just as they're becoming seduced by the modern Western world, in the meantime, you have Western 
intellectuals who are getting burnt out with Western materialism and they're looking to India. So it's like going both ways. The traffic is going both ways. And uh, so Thoreau thinks that the best book he's ever read by far, which totally, you know, dwarfs any Western book, including the Bible, is uh, the Bhagavad Gita. And you have people reading the Upanishads. But what's interesting is, and, and here's the point, the real point here is that even the Western people who find Vedic literature fascinating, who think it's even a superior culture, uh, they are not interested in the Puranas. All these stories of curses and boons and, you know, flying eagles such as Garuda. And, you know, just, I mean, the Puranas have all these stories where, you know, animals talk and, and all kinds of things happen. You know, the monkeys of Ramchandra who, you know, who speak and, and, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying these things aren't true. I'm simply saying that from the point of view of the West, they were saying, no, we're not really interested in that. We are interested in the pure intellectual monotheism of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. That's actually what interested them. There was another reason, which is kind of a dark part of the story, why certain Europeans were interested in India. Because with the, uh, this uh, European racism, because first of all, you have to understand that a uh, hundred years ago, everyone in the world practically was a racist. Racism was completely respectable. And uh, as you know, in India, you know, if, if a respectable family, if their daughter wants to marry someone of a different race, watch out. There's going to be, you know, it's going to be very explosive. And so racism was seen almost the way we would see nationalism. Just like nowadays, uh, it's perfectly normal to be a nationalist. Uh, in the past, racism was completely respectable and seemed natural. Of course, you root for your race, just as you root for your country. So therefore, because of this and because Europe was rising, it, it, it was dominating the world and everything financially, culturally, scientifically, militarily, Europe was completely dominant. And therefore, th some intellectuals started to say, why in the world are we slavishly following a sacred book, the Bible, which comes from the Middle East, for God's sake? Why are we following a Middle Eastern religion? Uh, we want our own European root. And they thought they had found it in the Indian Aryans. It's very interesting. And that, by the way, this is why Hitler used a swastika. This is why Hitler used the word Aryan. It's all part of this. He was, he was part of, I mean, he, he, something which already existed before him. And that is the idea that when the European, here's how it goes. When the Europeans discovered how sophisticated India was, when they discovered, as Sir William Jones declared in 1790, that Sanskrit was actually more sophisticated as a language. It was more impressive than any European language. In Europe at the time, if you were like really educated, then you had to learn Greek, you had to learn Latin. But Sanskrit was actually a more advanced language, more sophisticated. And if you know, how many people here have seen My Fair Lady? Anyway. If you know My Fair Lady, 
it, at that time, how you speak really determined your social class. How you speak determines your social class in that civilization. So when you have a non-Caucasian culture, actually, technically, Indians are Caucasians, but that's another point. But when you have a non-white civilization with a language more advanced, more sophisticated than any European language, uh, this was a problem. This was a serious problem. And therefore, to it was embarrassing because how could the Indians be more intellectually advanced than we are uh, if they're not white and they're not Christian? So uh, the Europeans figured out a way to solve this problem, which was, of course, now academically it's rejected as, as, as nonsense. But that is the Aryan invasion theory. That, well, how does India have in some ways an intellectual culture language which is which are more advanced than Europe well because Europeans brought it to them actually it's the Europeans who in, successfully invaded India being a superior race brought the Veda with them and uh, then co committed a colossal blunder and intermarried with the local people thus losing their pure Aryan status and uh, so now, so, and, and amazingly enough, uh, where did they get this idea? Where did they get this idea that non-white people could not have created this highly sophisticated culture? And therefore, we must have brought it to them. Sir Mortimer Wheeler was a famous archaeologist, British archaeologist, the head of the British Archaeological Mission in India. And they were excavating uh, some ruins in Mahenjo-Daro, Harappan area in what is now Pakistan, and he found a skeleton in one of his digs. He found a skeleton which uh, appeared to show that whoever used to own that skeleton uh, died a violent death. One skeleton. And you get this whole Aryan invasion theory, which has now been, of course, I remember when I was at Harvard, I asked uh, my professor, who was one of the world's leading scholars of the Vedas, he said, what about the Aryan invasion theory? He said, he just laughed. He said, oh, that's a 19th century theory. But still, that was the explanation that, yes, we brought the Vedas to the, uh, to the people of India. So, um, so Hitler was basically just riding that bandwagon. Because if, it's a, if it were true, and of course it's not true, if it were true that the Europeans or white people somewhere in the Caucasus or Central Asia, whatever, that they brought the Vedas, they brought this civilization to India, then by embracing the Vedic literature, especially what they consider to be the non-mythological part of it, namely the Upanishads, although it's, it's kind of a stupid distinction if you don't actually know the Upanishads. But anyway, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, if you embrace that, as the actual Vedic literature brought by the Aryans, who are Europeans, uh, then um, by colonizing India, two things happen. First of all, by colonizing India, we are actually saving our Aryan brothers who were lost by intermarriage. I mean, this, of course, nowadays this sounds pretty horrible, but I'm just telling you, this is the history of it. And also, it gave people who were 
reacting against Christianity and Judaism, that this is a Middle Eastern religion. We need our own Aryan religion. Well, we've got it. The Upanishads, they are the original Aryan religion. So we can get rid of this Middle Eastern religion, namely Judeo-Christianity, and we, have, we actually have our own Aryan religion. And so Hitler was just buying into this whole, you know, so-called Indological theory and identifying with the, you know, the Aryan nation and all that, the swastika, but he was talking about white people. He wasn't talking actually about Indians. Although India remains the only country on earth in which Hitler is still seen positively by many people, but that's another topic. So, um, so how does that relate to the word Hindu? Anyway, in the midst of all this, all this stuff is going on. All this stuff is going on. And many intelligent Indians see that the British and Europe in general, the West in general, is doing what the Muslims never could do. And that is actually attracting Hindus to their culture, actually attracting them and, and uh, sort of uh, convincing them that maybe this is a higher culture. Maybe we need to, you know, we should obviously we should go to English universities. And if we're going to English universities, if they're right about science, if they did the industrial revolution, if they have superior military technology, maybe their theories about the Vedas are also better. If they know more in so many areas, maybe the uh, Oxford professors of Sanskrit and Vedic literature, maybe they also understand more, maybe they're right about the Vedas. So this was a big problem. And of course, it didn't go unnoticed by uh, many Indians. And there was, and, and there was a counteroffensive. There was a, and, and a lot of the 19th century in India is just the story of all these attempts to push back against this cultural intellectual invasion. And uh, so one example I gave is that, who is that, Dayananda Saraswati, the, the Arya Samaj. Now, what does the Arya Samaj do? And, and based on what I've already told you, you'll see why he, why he does this. This person, in the, he first of all, he used the word Arya Samaj. And then he rejects the Puranas. He rejects all the Sanskrit literature that the Europeans reject because he says, I'm not gonna defend that. And he says, we only want the Vedas. So in a sense, he buys into the racist theory of the Europeans because the Europeans are saying that, you know, we, you know, the great white people, we wrote all these great Vedic literatures and then we successfully invaded India, took over India, we got sloppy, we intermarried, and, and now we've lost our real caste as, as Aryans. And so therefore, it's the original Vedic literature, which is actually our culture, not the later stuff, the Puranas, with all these stories and all these literatures and, and, and the Ramayan. That's what the Indian people did, you know, the original people of India, and now the Indians who used to be Aryans but intermarried and have long ago lost any real Aryan qualities. So these people, the indigenous people, created the Smriti literature, 
And so therefore we, we want the, you know, the Shruti literature is actually the Aryan literature. And Dayananda Saraswati, he, he actually buys into this. And he says the real Vedic literature is what the racist Europeans say. The real Vedic literature is just the Shruti. It's the, uh, the Vedas, it's the Upanishads and so on and so forth. And he rejects the other literature, which is a very interesting reaction. And then of course you have the Brahmo Samaj, you have the Arya Samaj, you have all these different groups that, that have different strategies. Now, of course, one prominent figure in this 19th century history is Bhaktivinoda Thakur, who actually recreated, in a sense, uh, reestablished Lord Chaitanya's movement in this world. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur even admits that when he was young, he also was affected by these ideas. So here you have Bhaktivinoda Thakur, uh, intellectual, highly educated, and he himself, as he writes in his autobiography, is becoming affected by all these ideas. But then he sits down, he reads the Bhagavatam, he discovers that this is actually the greatest of all books. He actually reads the Bhagavatam, which he had almost rejected, and he discovers, no, this is the real absolute truth. This is, and I remember that um, there was a, uh, there was a famous Sanskrit scholar named Daniel Ingalls. He was very famous in the uh, sort of the mid 20th century. For many years, he was the chairman of the Sanskrit and Indian Studies Department at Harvard, and a very famous scholar. And he said that uh, the most impressive book as literature, talking about books as literature now, the most impressive book he had read in any language, and he read many books in many languages, was the Srimad Bhagavatam. So anyways, that's Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Now, let's go to Dr. Radhakrishnan. Have any of you heard of Dr. Radhakrishnan? But not my fair lady, so that's, anyway, no comment. So, Dr. Radhakrishnan, other notable people you've obviously heard of, like Vivekananda. Let's start with Vivekananda, because he's a little earlier. Vivekananda, uh, is one of the people, like Dayananda Saraswati, who is alarmed at the erosion of Hindu belief, especially among intellectuals, in Vedic culture, in this literature. And so he comes up with a strategy. Vekananda actually has a strategy, and, uh, and Dr. Radhakrishnan, of course, also carries out this strategy. And if you understand what their strategy was, you will understand uh, what the problem is with the word Hindu. There, uh, so I'll describe to you briefly their strategy. It is that um, obviously we have a problem. We have a big problem. And that is that Europe, the West is so dominant, is so influential, they have Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and, you know, and, and then we have poor Brahmins chanting mantras in, in, a, in a straw hut. And so uh, we have a problem. And then he says the problem is, here's his solution. He says that the religions in the world, which actually seem to be thriving and, you know, and, 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 and maintaining their power are these sectarian religions. 
namely Christianity and Islam, where they have one religion. I mean, of course, I mean, there are hundreds of different forms of Christianity. Basically, there is such a thing as Christianity. They all worship Jesus. They disagree on some things like, you know, Greek or Russian Orthodox and Roman Catholic and all the many Protestant groups. But basically, they agree on a lot of stuff. It's not like Krishna's God, no, Shiva's God, no, Shakti is supreme, no, you know, none of you guys like Karmi Monson. So the in Hinduism, even though because the Hindu or the, the people in India were in, in some ways objectively more civilized and therefore didn't kill each other over religion. So apparently people only notice that religions are different if they kill each other. Then they know, oh, these are different religions. But actually, if you look at the various religions, which are somehow under the umbrella of Hinduism, they're much more different in some ways, although they share a lot of common cultural features. They're much more different than, let's say, the difference between Islam and Christianity. Because to be a Muslim, you have to accept Jesus, you have to accept the Old Testament. So you can say, well, my God, Islam and Christianity are much closer than various forms of Hinduism. But because they slaughtered each other over it for so many centuries, they very firmly established themselves as different religions. So Vivekananda, Radhakrishna, they think, well, we have to be like them, you know, fight fire with fire. So we have to have one religion. That because there are so, because in India, for thousands of years, people actually had religious freedom because Indians weren't barbarians and they didn't kill each other generally over religion. And I mean, for example, you have the rise of Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism, they openly claimed as one of their main claims that we reject the Vedas and also Jainism. And they became very powerful. There were many Hindu and Jain kingdoms in India at one point maybe a few thousand years ago, they were very powerful. So imagine this. I mean, imagine at that time, well, of course, Europe didn't exist then. I mean, Christianity didn't exist, but I mean, imagine, let's say in medieval Europe, if you went all around Christian Europe in the Middle Ages, preaching that the Bible is false, don't follow the Bible, it's a false religion. I mean, your life expectancy would, could be measured in seconds. And if you live even a few hours only because they thought it was, you know, you should not be allowed to die slowly. And uh, you obviously had to be tortured. They would find the most painful, slow way to kill you. But basically your career as an anti-Jesus preacher would, would uh, last a matter of seconds. And yet in India, you have all these, and these are Indians now, these, you know, Buddhism is only in India at this point, basically. You have all these Indian Buddhists who are going around preaching against the Vedas, the Bible of India, and no one kills them, no one attacks them. And, and so the people who follow the Vedas say, well, this is an intellectual challenge, it's a religious challenge. We have to come up with a more effective preaching strategy. This, this is absolutely inconceivable in other parts of the world. India is the only place in the world, in terms of great civilizations, that is imaginable that you could preach against the sacred books of the entire culture and, and you're not just tortured and killed very quickly. It's unimaginable outside of India. Of course, you know, it's a double-edged sword. The other edge 
is that India becomes pretty chaotic in terms sort of religiously chaotic. And because there's, you know, everyone can just have their own religion, whatever they want. So anyway, Vivekananda, Vivekananda, Raja Krishna said, this is a mess. We got to clean up the mess. We need one religion. Like, okay, you're preaching Christianity. You're preaching Islam. We are preaching our religion, one religion, which of course ignores all the natural differences. And so he said, we will call it Hinduism. That was the idea. There was, it wasn't only these two people, but there was a sort of this movement, minority movement saying, let's call it Hinduism. That's the name they picked. So we can have one religion, just like the Christians and Muslims. Now, they said, well, if we have one religion, we need, we have to have one theology because, you know, if you're a Christian, it means you accept Jesus. So what does it mean if you're a Hindu? It means you accept Shiva or Vishnu or Krishna or Shakti or none of them, or what does it even mean? So therefore, they made a conscious decision. This is a, you see it in, you can read this in transcripts of the lectures of Vivekananda and Dr. Radhakrishna. This is not my imagination. I wrote a paper on it, which I just sent to Prem Tatri. And I can send you my paper, you can read the quotes. They said that the philosophy we will choose to be the universal philosophy of all Hindus, which was kind of a new idea, is Shankaracharya, impersonalism. Again, you know, read my paper, all, you know, all the, all the little duckies are lined up there. And so why Shankara? Because for Shankara, all of the gods are illusion. Krishna is Maya, Vishnu is Maya, Shiva is Maya, Shakti is Maya, everyone's Maya, because the ultimate truth is simply Nirakar, near everything, Brahma. Now, if you're a Vaishnava, let's say you're a follower of Lord Chaitanya, and suddenly you are informed, uh, you thought you were a Vaishnava, you thought you were a Gaudiya Vaishnava, actually you're a Hindu, which has no history, by the way. Actually, you're a Hindu, and although you thought you were worshiping the personal form of Krishna as a Hindu, you actually are a follower of Shankaracharya. And this is, by the way, what they taught. So, uh, you know, before we go too crazy with, with Hindu nationalism, let's look at the real history. So you're a follower of Shankaracharya, and uh, therefore, if you worship Vishnu or Krishna, you have to understand Vishnu or Krishna within the context of the great Acharya Shankara, and uh, you have to somehow, you have to adjust your Vaishnavism so that it fits in with this new religion called Hinduism. And uh, so, anyway, that's a, not perhaps as brief as you might have liked, but that's a bit of history for you about the word Hindu and the concept of being a Hindu. I mean, again, Lord Chaitanya accepted the word when talking to people that couldn't really communicate otherwise. And in Lord Chaitanya's time, the people that couldn't really, you couldn't really talk to them unless you said, okay, I'm a Hindu. Nowadays, it used to be, if you were speaking to Muslim invaders, you have to say, okay, I'm a Hindu, just to have a conversation. Now you have to use the, say, I'm a Hindu, if you're trying to talk to Indians. 
if you're even trying to talk to Indians now, you have to speak in a way that in the past you only had to use if you're speaking to Muslim invaders. But now you have to use that same language to communicate with Indians because they, they are the ones now, just like it was the Muslims, now it's many Indians who don't understand the concept of being a Vaishnava, and that's my primary identification. So how does that relate to worshiping only Krishna? Or should we worship others? So I, I, that's the context I want to put it in. So let's go back now to the topic, which I haven't forgotten. <laughs> Despite my the advanced age of my body, I actually still remember. So, um, Vaishnavas have always worshipped Vishnu. That's what the word means, Vaishnava. Notice the connection, Vaishnava, Vishnu, and, and Krishna. Now, Lord Chaitanya, so what is our attitude toward other great personalities? Like, see, when Lord Chaitanya was traveling around South India, which is interesting, he traveled for years around South India, he used to, you know, from time to time, stop at Shiva temples because, you know, spend some quality time with Lord Shiva. And, and the Bhagavatam says, Vaishnavananjita Shambhu, that the most exemplary Vaishnav is Shambhu, Shiva. The example is given in the Brahma Samhita that Chiranjita, uh, the Divikara Vishesha Jyogar, Sanjayate Nahitatak Pritagasti Hetu, Jakshambutam Apitatasam Paiti Karyat, Govindamadi Purushantamaham Pajam. This is the explanation of the relationship between Krishna and Shiva given in the Brahma Sanghita, which Lord Chaitanya personally discovered in South India and brought back to North India. So, Chiram Jitha, Chira, milk. Just as milk, Dadi, be, becomes yogurt, just as milk becomes yogurt, <laughs> like these really like real-world examples, you know, discussing sophisticated theology in terms of dairy products. I mean, it's, it, it, it's actually really interesting. So, Chiram Jitha, Dadi, Bikara Vishesha Yoga. Bikara Vishesha means a specific transformation. Vikara Vishesha. And yoga means by or, or through a process of a specific transformation. Vikara uh, Vishesha Yoga. Through the process of a specific transformation, milk becomes yogurt. Milk becomes yogurt. Nahitatak Pritagasti Heito. And therefore, the yogurt, in one sense, is not prita, it's not different from its source. Nahitatat pritagasti heito, from its cause. The milk is the cause of yogurt, and the effect, in one sense, is not different from its cause. So, in that sense, yakshambhutam, the position of shambhu, or the status or the state of shambhu, yakshambhutam, uh, uh, what is the next word? Yakshambhutamapi. That Krishna, Govinda, takes on the form or takes on the state of being Shambhu Karya because something has to be done. Karja. 
because something has to be done, namely conditioned souls who can't understand a completely sattvika presentation still have to be somehow engaged in Vedic culture. And therefore, Krishna Samupaiti takes on this manifestation of Shambhu. So that's the explanation given in the Brahma Sangita. However, Vishnu, the fact that you honor, the fact that you honor other deities, but you focus your worship on Krishna is a very old custom. The idea that you sort of mix and match and, you know, let's, you know, worship everybody, that is a modern idea. That is not Vedic culture, actually. For example, look at the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda is, is universally considered by everyone, including Western scholars, the oldest Vedic literature. And when you find there is that Vishnu is described in a few verses as the ultimate goal. For example, Tad Vishnu Paramang Padang Pashanti Yang Surya. That the Surya, all the godly people, all the higher beings, are always looking toward the supreme abode of Vishnu. There was a prominent uh, Dutch Sanskrit scholar in the 20th century, one of the most famous Sanskrit scholars of the 20th century, named uh, Kuiper, who wrote an, an article on the role of Vishnu in the Rig Veda. And if you're just a bean counter, as they say, then you will notice that there are many, many, many more hymns addressed to Indra in the Rig Veda, but Indra is a deity within the world. Whereas, as Kuiper points out, the only deity in the Rig Veda who actually has a transcendental position, who is beyond everything, is Vishnu. And then you have the Yajurveda. The Yajurveda explains what the Rig Veda means and how you carry it out to perform Vedic sacrifices. And in that, in, in the literature of the Rig Veda, uh, you, fi you find the statement, Yajyovai Vishnu. Vishnu is the sacrifice. So whenever you perform a Vedic sacrifice, you are actually invoking Vishnu. Further, if you want to talk about commentaries, how did ancient people in India thousands of years ago, we could even say closer to Dwapar Yuga than our age, or maybe in Dwapar Yuga, how did they understand the Rig Veda? So if you understand the system of Vedic literature, there are the, the four Sanghitas, which in Sanskrit means collection, Sanghita, which are the Rig, Yajur, Samatarva Vedas. And then, as we know from the Bhagavatam, each of these four Vedas was turned over to, entrusted to a particular Brahmin community. So there were these extended Brahminical families. There were these strict Brahmin communities thousands and thousands of years ago who were responsible for each Veda. They were the caretakers. They, it, it belonged to them in the sense that they're the ones who learned it. They're the ones who taught it. They're the ones who memorized it. The Vedas survived in Indian history within these very special Brahminical communities. And these communities produced commentaries on their respective Vedas. And these commentaries are by far the oldest commentaries on the Vedas we have from within the Vedic tradition, by far. Now, in the Rig Veda, there are two, and, and by the way, these commentaries are called the Brahman literature. If you study in Dalit, they're called the Brahman literature because they're produced by the Brahman communities. 
Now, for the Rig Veda, there are two commentaries, and perhaps a more prominent one is the Aitareya Brahmana. Aitareya Brahmana, because it's in the line of Atri Muni. In the very first line of the Aitareya Brahmana, the very first mantra, in the oldest commentary, on the oldest Veda, the very first line is, of all the gods, Vishnu is the highest. That's in the Aitareya Brahmana. So, um, because Vishnu, even from the point of view of, let's say, the basics of what is called Hinduism, Vishnu is the Sattva He superintends the mode of goodness. The Brahmins are in the mode of goodness. Therefore, since forever, Vishnu is the Devata, the deity of the Brahmanas. And the Brahmanas are the ones who are closest to the absolute truth. And they worship Vishnu. In the Rig Veda, by the way, Shiva is not mentioned by name. There is reference to Rudras, uh, sort of as dangerous, a dangerous group of people. But anyway, later on, people understood more about Shiva. But the idea that in the Vedic culture you're supposed to worship everybody is a rather modern idea. We are certainly supposed to respect all these deities. We are we're certainly supposed to honor them. But we are specifically trying to go back to Krishna. Now here's one last point I'll make about this. And that is that um, why Krishna instead of Vishnu? Is it just personal like someone likes pistachio nut ice cream and someone likes butterscotch? Is it, is it, is it like that? There's something more than that going on. Um, of course, Vishnu is Krishna. I mean, there's only one God. I hope you'll be happy to know that we're monotheists. I hope that won't discourage anyone. Polytheism is, is sort of almost universally considered by philosophers to be a lower stage of religion. Polytheism. We are, Vaishnavas are not polytheists. That is, polytheism is sort of pre-philosophical religion. Because when you actually develop the intelligence to approach religion philosophically, then you understand there's some there's a supreme source of everything. Otherwise, it's just a big mess. Even in the polytheistic cultures of the world, like, like you find in ancient Greece and Rome and other places, they had an understanding that although there are many gods, these many gods are not the ultimate source of everything. There, there is a higher source of everything, which is one. So if you are simply trying to enjoy this world, then you, then, you know, why Krishna? Why Krishna? Because Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that if, even if you don't worship me, if you simply act in the mode of goodness, you can get a higher next life. You can be happy and wise in this life. Because Krishna says that Urdhvanga uh, Chanti Sattvastha. Those who are sattvastha, standing in goodness, they rise to a higher life. Krishna says, from goodness comes happiness. Krishna says, tatra sattvam nirmalatvat prakashakam. Because sattva guna, the material goodness, is relatively pure compared to the other qualities, therefore it's enlightening. Krishna used the word prakashakam, enlightening. So Krishna is not a jealous god. You can get a higher next life. You can be wise and happy without Krishna. But you're still in the material world. 
So if you just want to have a good life in the material world, then Vishnu is good enough. Because it's not so much about developing a full, rich, personal relationship like the gopis had with Krishna or the gopas had with Krishna. It's not about that. It's just about, okay, who's in charge? How do I please that person? And then I get a raise in my company. So, you know, the supreme company is the material universe and Vishnu's in charge or maybe Shiva's in charge. Anyway, it doesn't matter because we can please all of them. And so why even worry about it? So actually people want to worship many gods, not because they actually love these many gods, but because they just want to cover all their bases. Their real purpose is, you know, I want to have a great family life. I want to be wealthy. I want my family to be wealthy. I, you know, we just want all the good things you can have in this world. And so let's not offend anyone. Let's make sure we touch all the bases. And that's the real point. It's not that Hindus worship many gods because they have genuine, deep, spiritual love for all these gods. In fact, I've noticed in, in the Hindu temples they build in the West that the pujaris are kind of treated like, you know, okay, do this, do that. It's, they're just because it's, um, you know, you just hire a pujari, you bring him from India, you pay him a salary, you just boss him around. And, and so because it's not about, it's not about prema, it's not about love, it's about piety and protecting your rational interests in this world by satisfying the people who are in charge. I mean, just to, if we can be blunt here among friends. <laughs> and if you actually come to the point, and that's most religions are like that. I mean, it's not that this is different than any other worldly religion. If you come to the point where you realize I'm an eternal soul, I'm not this body, and I have forgotten the person whom I should love the most, and that is Krishna. And I want to go back to Krishna, not to enjoy, but I want to go back to Krishna because I love Krishna and because I want to be with the person I most love. At that point, it looks a little different. It's not just about, you know, putting the whole, putting, you know, a hundred different deities out there. Because your purpose is to love Krishna, to go with Krishna, like that great song by George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. I really want to know you. I really want to go with you. And at that point, of course, you respect all the other gods. You respect them. You honor them. But your relationship is with Krishna. It's just like when a man marries, he should respect all other, you know, other women. He should show them respect, but he doesn't live with them. He lives with his wife. And so if you are actually devoted to Krishna, if you actually understand that you are part of Krishna, I mean, think about that. You're not part of your wife. And for a woman, you're not part of your husband, despite all the fancy poetry saying you are. I mean, you know, poetry aside, you're actually not ontologically part of someone else. And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Mamai Vamsa, you are part of me alone. We think we're part of our country, part of our community, part of our family. And of course, we do have duties. I'm not saying we should neglect our duties. But ultimately, in the highest sense, we are part of Krishna. We are part of God. And that's what Krishna says. It's in the Gita. 
It's right there in the Gita. Mama Eva, of me alone. Angsha. Mama Eva, Angsha. It is part of me alone, Jiva Bhuta, the living being. That's us. We're living beings. Krishna says the living being is part of me alone. Mamaivamsa Jiva Loke Jiva Bhuta Sanatana, the eternal living being. So a Vaishnav, you know, loves everyone. A Vaishnav certainly takes care of his family or her family. A Vaishnav is kind to everyone. It's not that we, you know, all run out, run off into the forest, you know, to, you know, to sort of carve out our dandas. I mean, the point is, you know, we, and that's actually, that's the whole point of Bhagavad Gita. You don't give up your regular duties. That's the whole point. Arjun said, okay, uh, you know, spiritual life, not material life. I'm out of here. I'm not fighting this battle. And Krishna said, that's not the point. You do your duty, but you do it for me. So what I'm teaching here, what I'm trying to explain, doesn't mean that you give up your duties in the world. It means that you do them, but you understand ultimately what the truth of the matter is, that you are part of Krishna and that you ultimately have to go back to Krishna and you honor and respect all other honorable, respectable figures, certainly demigods and so on. But that's because, but that's what our program is. And so anyway, I tried to explain because with you see, go back to Vivekananda and Dr. Radhakrishnan. Again, what I'm saying, look it up. I can send you my essay. All the quotations are there. This is not my imagination. Because if you buy into this idea that you kind of, you kind of just roll over Vaishnavism and you just merge everyone into one package and the official philosopher of the package is Shankaracharya, and since according to Shankara, all the gods are just, you know, they're just Maya anyway, ultimately, uh, or certainly his followers. Actually, Shankara was not as fanatical as his followers. His followers were actually worse than him in terms of impersonalism. So then, yeah, worship all the different gods, because after all, all the different gods are just channels to the one truth, which is not any of the gods. I spoke at a Hindu temple in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee years ago. And uh, on the wall in the, in, the, in the Mandir, they had this big color poster, which I suppose is produced by some Hindu association. They send it to different temples. And it's very interesting. They had pictures of like Shiva and Vishnu and Krishna and this one and that one and the other one. And it was kind of a like an ascending hierarchy. And at the top was just a faceless Ishwara. And this was a poster to teach Hindus who worship there and anyone else that came in, this is Hinduism. This is what we believe. And what we believe is that Vishnu Krishna are just manifestations of the real God who's faceless and nameless and who we just call Ishwara. And so the idea, if you are a true Vaishnava, if you are a Krishna Bhakta, the idea that Krishna is just a manifest, a lower manifestation of a higher truth, which is sort of a semi-personal or impersonal Ishwara. Uh, that's not Vaishnavism. It never has been. You can go back thousands of years. Show me when 
That was Vaishnavism. And so, you know, this program of Vivekananda and Radharada, Dr. Radhakrishnan to merge everything into this Hinduism, Shankaracharya as our official teacher, and then Krishna just becomes a manifestation of a formless, faceless Ishwara. And it's right there on the wall in a, you know, a nice Hindu temple. It's just a typical, it's not some exotic temple. It's not some schismatic. It's just a normal, generic Hindu temple in America. <clears throat> and so with this strategy of these people, we, you know, you pay a price philosophically. So uh, what we're trying to do is get back to the original Vedic culture. We're trying to get back to the real Vedic culture and roll back all these inappropriate changes that were made actually quite recently and get back to the real, <coughs> the real Sanskrit Vedic culture. So uh, there you go. Any questions on these points? Yes. Thank you, Maharaj, for a wonderful class. This is the first time I'm uh, hearing all this history. I've never been exposed to, so thank you very much. Maharaj, um, uh, was it around that time when Vivekananda and Dr. Radhakrishna was trying to get uh, all different philosophies into one umbrella to explain that everyone accepted Bhagavad Gita as their book? Because even those who are impersonal, this is Bhagavad Gita is for everyone else. Yeah, they, yeah, but well, well, they, they accept Bhagavad Gita, but then they mutilate it. A word regarding Vivekananda. This is obviously a very delicate topic since he's a national hero in India. I stayed with uh, a very nice family. Actually, the, the, uh, the, the father of the family is, is from India and, and his wife was American. And uh, he was a distinguished professor of medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School, which is one of the great medical schools. And uh, the reason I stayed with this family is because their daughter was married or is, was married to a disciple of mine. And so, you know, it was all family. So I went up there to Ann Arbor and I, and I stayed with them and they were, they were very nice people. But he was a Vivekananda Bhakta. And he had the collected works of Vivekananda. He had this whole library of everything Vivekananda ever spoke or wrote or even thought. And so, and so naturally, my position, I, I didn't want to disrespect Vivekananda, but I said that we don't see it exactly probably the way you do. So we, I mean, he, he was a gentleman. So every morning at breakfast, we were having debates. I mean, it was all in, you know, with mutual respect, but we were having debates every morning at breakfast. And so what I did was, because I didn't want to uh, be unfair, is that every day I would read Vivekananda's lectures. I would read his teachings every day, and all of my arguments were based on what he actually said and wrote, which I thought was fair. So, of course, I didn't read all of his stuff, but I, I, I start, you know, it's like, you, you know, you take a little... You taste a little piece of the pie and then you know what the pie tastes like. So, so this is my take on Vivekananda. And of course, it, it's from someone who did not grow up knowing about him, who has no, who had no previous connection with him, no emotional attachment to him uh, as a national hero and no aversion. I mean, I have nothing against him. 
But when he went to the Congress of Re World Religions in 1896, and I read his talks at that Congress, that's actually what I was reading. It's very interesting because he was sort of going to fight fire with fire, as they say. Because the Christians, as we know, uh, so many Christian preachers were always saying that we have a better religion. And so Vivekananda just fired right back at them. No, we have a better religion. And he was, he was pretty explicit about that. He wasn't just trying to humbly explain this is what Hindus believe. He was actually trying to show that we're better than you. And, and again, that's read, read his lectures and you know, don't take my word for it. And so I'll, I'll give you just one example how in this polemical process where he was trying to show that we have a better religion than you do, which is exactly what he was doing, um, that he distorted Vedic culture. He distorted Vedic culture for his own rhetorical purposes. And to make his argument, I'll give you just one example. And it's not the only one. Vivekananda liked to say that one of the ways that Hinduism is better than Christianity is that uh, Christianity is kind of obsessed with sin, which was not, you know, not a bad argument. I mean, there now Christianity has been has been changing a lot, but yeah, there still are forms of Christianity, and there were a lot of forms of Christianity in his day which you could say they are obsessed with sin. So, but Vivekananda, he wanted to really hit it out of the park, as they say in America, you know. And so he said, in Hinduism, there's no concept of sin. You will never hear a Hindu talking about sin. So he really wanted to draw this absolute contrast. You only talk about sin, we never talk about sin. The only problem with that is he's wrong. He's very wrong. For example, in the Bhagavad Gita, we have the word somewhat frequently, papa, which means sin. That's what the word means. Evil, sin, you're punished for it. There's a whole chapter in the Bhagavad Gita about sinful people, the asuras, asura bhav. If you read the Manu Sanghita, it talks about all the different punishments that you get for different sins. If you read the fifth canto of the Bhagavatam, it talks about different forms of hell that people go to because they're sinful. They're not eternal hells, thank God, but they're not nice places either. I mean, they're really, there's some tough love in the fifth canto of the Bhagavatam. <laughs> so everywhere you look, Bhagavad Gita, Simad Bhagavatam, uh, you know, Manu Sanghita, and so for, and, and so what one scholar pointed out, I, I forget his name, he was a prominent scholar. He was at, oh no, no, I know who it was. Now I remember. At the University of Michigan, uh, there was a very famous Sanskrit scholar who was uh, an Indian Brahmin, but who was a very famous Sanskrit scholar at this prestigious university. What was his name? Uh, Dr. Um, Pande, uh, anyway, I just slipped my mind. But he, he was he was one of the most, I mean, he's still known. He's one of the most prominent Sanskrit scholars, academic Sanskrit scholars in the world, <laughs> university Sanskrit scholars. And so because I was having this debate with this gentleman who was the uh, father-in-law of one of my disciples, I went down to the university and I, I spoke to this person 
and this scholar who was a nice guy. And I said, you know, we're having this debate and, uh, you know, this gentleman is claiming that Vivekananda said this, but, it, and so this scholar, he just started laughing again. This is, you know, from India, Brahmin from India. And he was one of the most famous Sanskrit scholars in the academic world at a very prestigious school. When I said that, he just laughed and he just said, Vivekananda, he never read the Vedas. He never read the literature. So here, it's very interesting. It's just like, for example, to, to give an analogy to show how these kinds of uh, strange things don't only happen in Hinduism. Uh, if you look at Christianity, by far the most influential figure in creating a religion called Christianity was St. Paul, if you consider him a saint. St. Paul. In fact, he basically took over the Christian religion because he took it to the Gentiles. Uh, he started making a lot of followers. He had all this money and followers. And so in the New Testament, half of the New Testament is either his writings or writings by people who were under him, his assistants, like Luke, who was his secretary. So here's the most influential person in creating what became Christianity. And according to scholars, and it's true, you can check it yourself, it, we, it, it, we really don't know if he even knew anything about, very much about Jesus. Because if you look at all of his writings, I, I remember when I took a, a class years ago at UCLA from a, uh, in early Christianity, and I remember the professor, who's also from Harvard, the professor said that um, it's well known that if you read all the writings of Paul, which are almost half of the New Testament, and you extract from those writings just data, like information about Jesus, biographical information, direct quotes from Jesus, Jesus, direct quotes of Jesus. Jesus said this, he did this. He said you could put all that information from half the New Testament on one index card. on one index card. And therefore, it's not at all clear, we have no evidence that St. Paul knew very much about Jesus, whom he never met personally. And so you have a person who may not have known very much about Jesus, creating, you know, being the leading figure to create the Christian church. Similarly, you have a, a figure, Vivekananda, who is perhaps the most influential person in establishing what modern Hinduism is, who, according to one of the most prominent scholars of Hinduism, never read the Vedas and knew very little about them. And so it, it, it's very interesting that you have people being leading dominant figures in establishing what a religion is and should be who actually know very little about the foundational principles and figures of that religion. And so this idea, of course, as we know, Vekananda was a follower of Ramakrishna, who said Jatamatatapa, which in Bengali means like, you know, whatever you believe, that's your religion. Just do it your own way, because all the gods are the same, and you can worship, you know, any god, or probably you should worship all of them. Again, did he quote Shastra? Did he quote Bhagavad Gita? Did he quote Bhagavatam? Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, 
that jp anya devata bhakta yajante shadhyan vita tepi mama eva kunte yajanti aviti purvakam those who worship other deities that this is krishna speaking don't kill the messenger jp anya devata bhakta those who are devoted to other deities devatas deva means as you know a god devata uh, has a sense of a, a worshipable figure deity you actually worship a devata, someone who literally stands in the position of deva, of God. So Krishna says, those who worship other deities, jp anya devata are devoted to them, shadhyami, with, with faith, really believing in it, they're actually worshiping me. Krishna says, tepi mameva, they're actually worshiping me alone. Tepi mameva, but they don't know what they're doing. So this is Krishna's, uh, you could say, official statement on let's worship all the gods. But again, who cares about what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita when we can hear from people that don't even know the Bhagavad Gita, but still they you know, are the spokespersons for Hinduism, in addition to being national heroes in India. So uh, that is Prabhupada's greatness, actually. That is Prabhupada's greatness that he gave us Bhagavad Gita as it is. So if you want to know what Krishna really said, read Prabhupada's Gita. If you want to know what Krishna, if you care what Krishna actually said and taught, read Prabhupada's Gita. And if you don't care what Krishna actually said on many topics, then you can you know, listen to some of these other people. Yes? Maybe different question, like does Dharam Saraswati read Vedas? Did Dayananda Saraswati read the Vedas? He probably did, but he also didn't read them well enough. Because what we find in Shruti literature, the oldest Upanishads, like Chandogya Upanishad and so on, which are considered Vedas, they are the Jnanakanda of the Vedas. The Vedas, except it said in the Vedas, Itihasa Puranancha Panchamo Veda Uchate, the Itihasa. The histories, which are, of course, uh, especially Ramayana, Mahabharata, and the Puranas, are the fifth Veda. The Vedas say that. There's an old saying, don't try to be more Catholic than the Pope. And similarly, don't try to be more Vedic than the Vedas. So the Vedas say, Itihasa Puranancha Panchamo Veda Uchita. You understand this. Uh, yes, another question? Uh, very absorbing lecture. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I have several questions, but what, the first one of them is, uh, you mentioned about the racial, uh, the existence of racial superiority in uh, the 16th century England. Or belief in it. Be belief in racial. Belief in, yeah. Well, actually, you can, we could talk about 19th century England, and, and it's all over the world. But uh, wasn't that kind of systematically ingrained in society through what's called uh, Orientalism? No, no, Orientalism is a completely different thing. Orientalism is a consequence, not a cause of racism. I'll explain that. Right, okay. First of all, I mean, the Japanese, the, uh, you know, Hindus, the white Europeans, I mean, who wasn't a racist for God's sake? You know, the Chinese, my God, major racist. I mean, 
basically every civilization that really achieves something impressive, the great civilizations, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians, the Europeans, they were all, you know, to the death racist. And that was going on for thousands of, I mean, they never doubted it. There was nothing to talk about, it was obvious. Orientalism, if, if, you, if you believe that you have a superior culture and even a superior race and a superior religion, the only true religion, and you come to India, then obviously you are going to filter all your studies through the lens of your beliefs. So Orientalism means, you know, it's a whole topic. Orientalism is the idea that, you know, Eastern religions are all like that, or Eastern people are, you know, and really kind of mixing together the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians, everybody. That was Orientalism. Like all of all Asians are kind of wrong, and they sort of share certain wrong beliefs. Wasn't it that we, that we the Europeans, went there and civilized them and taught them everything, and they don't know? Well, that was the Aryan invasion theory. But also you have to remember something, that when the Europeans went to India, you see, it's, it's just like Africans were half of the slave trade, which is not really talked about. Similarly, when you look at the European scholars who went in there and were trying to sort of deconstruct Indian religion, they were talking to caste Brahmins. Because who are they going to talk to? You know, rickshaw wallas? When, when the European scholars went to India and they wanted to study the Vedas because, I mean, at least to their credit, they were scholars. And even if they wanted to show that Christianity or Europe is superior, they realized we have to make good arguments that will stand up in a scholarly environment. For example, Monier Williams. Monier Williams, who wrote the great Sanskrit English dictionary, which Western scholars all criticize and all use, um, he occupied this Bowdoin chair. There's a Colonel Bowden who endowed a Sanskrit chair at Oxford. So he held that chair. And the endowment of the chair, the terms of the endowment of this main Sanskrit chair at Oxford, the terms are the chair should be given to a prominent scholar who can advance the Christian mission in India. I mean, they don't do that anymore at Oxford. And they even have, you know, Hindu scholars who hold that chair from time to time. But but that was, they created a chair, Sanskrit chair at Oxford, to convert Hindus to Christianity. And so when Monier Williams produced his dictionary, he was criticized in England because they said, what good is a dictionary going to do to convert heathens, Hindus, into Christians? You know, you should have been in India preaching. And so Monier Williams had to defend himself for producing the best Sanskrit English dictionary to this day. He did it 100 years ago, and he had to defend himself. That was not a waste of his time as an Oxford scholar of Sanskrit, you know, producing the best dictionary. And so to defend himself, and he might have just said this to defend himself. He might not have really believed it. He said that, well, obviously we have to show that the Vedic literatures are silly and inferior to the Bible, and we can't do that uh, unless we read them. And so we need a dictionary. And... He said the Hindus, you know, they're kind of, they don't, you know, they don't think so much. So anything written in Sanskrit, they will take as sacred. So therefore, let's translate the Bible into Sanskrit, and then they'll all accept the Bible if it's written in Sanskrit. They just accept old Sanskrit literature. 
The funny thing is in ISKCON, you find all these devotees accepting Vastu Shastra because it's an old Sanskrit book and no one ever asks where it comes from. That's another topic. So, so anyway, that was Orientalism. Seeing that you, that, that you do scholarship, good scholarship, but you assume that Indians are inferior and their religion is inferior and then you do scholarship. And there's a lot of good scholarship, but a lot of times they would interpret their scholarship in, in foolish ways because they were biased by that. So that's Orientalism. So maybe we'll stop here. Thank you all very much for your patience. Hare Krishna. I'd like to thank everybody in faith. We have devotees around the world also watching. And so.